uh, QuackCast, number 220 in the series. This one is called Diagnostic Reflections. And references for this podcast can be found at Science-Based Medicine from the blog entry of the same name from January 26th, 2023. Quote, when I was younger, I could not remember anything, whether it had happened or not. But my faculties are decaying now, and soon I shall be so I cannot remember any but the things that never happened. It is sad to go to pieces like this, but we all have to do it. Mark Twain. There was a recent study that raised a mild brouhaha, entitled Diagnostic Errors in the Emergency Department, a Systematic Review. It found that there was often a misdiagnosis in the emergency room. And there was gambling, gambling in Rick's. The study found 15 medical problems that accounted for the bulk of the misdiagnoses. Quote, the top 15 clinical conditions associated with serious misdiagnosis-related harms, accounting for 68% of serious harms, were stroke, myocardial infarction, aortic aneurysm and dissection, spinal cord compression and injury, venous thromboembolism, meningitis and encephalitis, sepsis, lung cancer, traumatic brain injury, traumatic intracranial hemorrhage, arterial thromboembolism, and spinal and intracranial abscesses, cardiac arrhythmia, pneumonia, gastrointestinal perforation and rupture, and intestinal obstruction. They estimated, quote, with 130 million U.S. emergency room visits, estimated rates for diagnostic error, 5.7%, misdiagnosis-related harms, 2%, and serious misdiagnosis-related harms, 0.3%, could translate to more than 7 million errors, 2.5 million harms, and 350,000 patients suffering potentially preventable permanent disability or death. So, not an insignificant problem. The first thought was to contrast the finding with the practice of fantasy-based medicine, those who follow the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind, NRLM. You know, alternative medicine. Practitioners of traditional Chinese pseudomedicine are, after examining the tongue and pulse, 100% wrong in their diagnoses. Chiropractors, if they're looking for and treating subluxations, 100% wrong. Naturopaths, there I am less sure, as that is a form of NRLM that excels more in goofy treatment than in goofy diagnoses, although they have their fair share of goofy diagnoses. Most of the other forms of NRLM hover close to 100% in their misdiagnoses. The alternative medicine diagnosis is often definitional for misdiagnoses. But that's not a various comparison. That of apples and bird shit, as Sal the Cacophony might call it. Making the correct diagnosis is, like teen talk Barbie's opinion on math, tough. As this post goes up, I have one working day left as an infectious disease doctor. If you include the second two years of medical school, I have spent 41 years working mostly in the hospital, taking care of acutely ill patients. I have easily seen 50,000 patients in consultation. Really? Four to five consults a day, 48 weeks a year, one in three to one in five weekends on call. It adds up to a small city worth of patients I have seen. As I head into my inevitable decline, like all old geezers, 
I'd like to reflect on the past and pontificate to all you youngsters who would likely ignore my sage opinions. Getting the correct diagnosis in the fog of medicine can be damn difficult. And like Grandpa Simpson, I will take this opportunity to give a mostly SBM-free rambling on the medical diagnosis in my experiences, both triumphs and failures. For I flatter myself that I am a diagnostician. Making the correct diagnosis is key to all that follows in patient care, and as I have mentioned, tough. Anyone can look up the correct treatment once a diagnosis is made. You'd think. I remain shocked how often a simple Google to determine what is best therapy is not done, part of why I have had a career. As another aside, Google Scholar can be invaluable in making the right diagnosis. Has influenza been associated with sterile cardiac vegetations? Yep. Can vomiting lead to esophageal tear and empyema? You betcha. Two examples from the last month of my practice where the diagnosis of atypical disease presentations was explained by a quick Google search. I am so glad the index medicus has gone the way of the dial-up modem. Now, if only I could get rid of medical references behind paywalls. Making the diagnosis is what makes the real doctor. Petty as it is, I derived enormous satisfaction from reaching a diagnosis, especially if it was missed by others, and double especially if the diagnosis was not an infectious disease. It brings out the gloat like nothing else. For example, I had a patient who came home to Portland to die of AIDS. This was back in the bad old days before heart. He had been at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston for two months, slowly fading away. When I saw him, well, he was tan like he had been in Jamaica in August rather than a Boston winter. Low blood pressure and sodium, high potassium, classic Addison's disease induced by his rifampin. Hard to miss. A bit of steroids and he perked up and lived another year. Gloat central to this day. For those of you not in medicine, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston is considered one of the premier hospitals in the United States. As Gag Hellfront noted, well, Brigham and Women is just this hospital, you know. But I learned as a resident in Minnesota that the so-called great hospitals? Nah. Patients often went to Rochester for a second opinion, only to come back with no new insights, but significantly poorer. Hold the mayo, we used to say. When I am asked about a second opinion, I always think of Henny Youngman's joke. My doctor told me I was fat. I said, I want a second opinion. He said, okay, you're ugly too. Not all doctors are diagnosticians, however. What is a diagnostician in my mind? Someone who, after doing a history and physical, comes up with a diagnosis for whatever ails the patient. I remember once I had an AIDS patient, a home beer brewer, who had Saccharomyces cerevisiae in his blood. So I knew what ailed him. Yeah, I went there. Pathologists and radiologists do not qualify as diagnosticians, nor do many other physicians. Some are fine within their organ or specialty. A cardiologist is fine for a cardiac diagnosis. A gastroenterologist is fine for a GI diagnosis. And Larry is fine for a Three Stooges diagnosis. ER docs most assuredly are not diagnosticians. Sorry, guys. The usual attitude of physicians at the receiving end of an admission from the ER is that the ER is wrong about the diagnosis. But that is how it should be. Part of the ER 
doc's job is to determine whose illness needs admission. Every doc has their specific training and expertise. Just as you would not want me to remove your appendix or deliver your baby, you would not expect all doctors to be equal diagnosticians. If you want a doctor who has both the breadth and depth of medical knowledge, you either want an internist, hospitalist, or an infectious disease doctor. I, like Zephyr Bibelbrox, would survive the total perspective vortex. As an aside, kids today, I remain shocked, shocked at how few house staff and medical students have any knowledge of the classics. Monty Python and the Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy are unknown to them. Doctors are just not the dorky nerds we used to be. Infectious diseases involves all organ systems and many processes can mimic an infection. So as my old boss used to say, the ID doctor has to be the second best cardiologist, second best pulmonologist, etc. in the hospital. So what does it take to be a diagnostician? I mean, besides overweening self-esteem. What follows is where the old geezer wanders down memory lane with an onion on my belt, as was the style of the time. Experience helps. While I have long maintained that the three most dangerous words in medicine are in my experience, that has more to do with choosing an appropriate therapy than making a diagnosis. The practice of medicine, with emphasis on practice, is as much a trade as a profession. And like building cabinets, the more patients you have seen, the better diagnostician you become, I would hope. Unlike, say, golf, where no amount of practice will allow you to escape mediocrity. You know, that's sometimes life's motto. Practice makes mediocre. A couple of years ago, I introduced myself to a patient who was apparently admitted from central casting as a stereotypical Russian. A big bear of a man, he got out of bed and gave me a crushing hug. Finally, he said, an old doctor. Someone who knows what they are doing. Which I kind of understand. I mean, medical students these days look like they belong in high school, as do the house staff. While I have not seen it all, I have seen more than most. And it is seeing diseases that is important. You can read about a disease, but it never really gives the flavor of a patient presentation. The textbooks will say 80% of patients will have this symptom, and 67 that symptom, and 5% will have the other thing. But patients do not read the textbooks, and so often will present with signs and symptoms that are kind of sort of resembling the textbook description, but not quite. Kind of like Nutramatic Tea. Years ago, I saw a patient in clinic on Friday afternoon. Friday afternoon is a bad time to be sick, and she was sick. High fevers, severe polyarticular arthralgias, rash, toxic appearing. It had been going on for a week, and I had no clue what she had. But as I say, she was sick. I was betting on endocarditis with immune complex arthritis and admitted her to the hospital. Monday, I came back to work, and the patient was gone. I asked the hospitalist what had happened, fearing the worst. Oh, he said, it was Stills disease. Got all better on steroids, and we sent her home. Classic. Classic? I had vague memories of Stills and read up on it. Yep classic case. Totally missed it. But I learned about stills and vowed never to miss a case again. Wrong. Three months later, I was consulted on another case, not classic in the presentation, and missed the diagnosis again. Rheumatology made the diagnosis on the basis of a sky-high ferritin. Since that time, I have not missed a case, and I have made the diagnosis several times. 
But if you have never seen a case of a disease, you will likely not recognize it the first time or maybe the second time. There is no better experience for becoming good at diagnosing a disease than missing a few cases. From the patient's perspective, you do not want to be the first for some doctor's learning experience. There is a saying in medicine, you don't want to be a great case. In evaluating patients, we are trained to generate a differential diagnosis, a list of diseases that can cause the patient's symptoms. The 10 reasons for chest pain, the 12 reasons for shortness of breath, the four causes of fever of unknown origin. I didn't actually bother to count them up, so don't quibble. The weird thing about the process of generating these lists is how, over time, they have become internalized. It used to be that I would consciously go through a list for whatever the problem was, considering the pros and cons of each option. Now, more often than not, I know the diagnosis with remarkably little thought and scant information. The answer just burbles up like a bubble in a tar pit. It's leptospirosis. It's really weird how much processing goes on beneath my geriatric consciousness. And it impresses other docs no end when you give the correct diagnosis after just a few words. I like to swing for the fence that way. Progressive headache for two months and an abnormal LP? Cryptococcus. Pancytopenia and fevers for a month and a Hispanic? Brucella. And bingo was his name It is important to remember that while Babe Ruth led the league in home runs, he also led the league in strikeouts. People always remember the former and forget the latter. But you can make quite a name for yourself swinging for the fences and being right only occasionally. Pulling information seemingly out of thin air can impress the patient as well. Years ago, I saw a young female with, well, relapsing fever. So rather than my usual any travel lately question, I ask, so how was your vacation in Black Butte? The look of shock when she asked how I knew she had been to Black Butte was priceless. I understand how mentalists must feel. But Black Butte is the only part of Oregon where Borrelia, the spirochete that causes relapsing fever, is found. I went down to the lab and there was the wee beastie on a smear. I still mentally go through the list. Gotta be safe. And often I make sure I consider four lists. The list of what the diagnosis might be. The list of what diagnosis would be potentially catastrophic to miss. The list of cool diagnoses. Of course, I am unnaturally drawn to the cool diagnosis, no matter how remote the possibility. And it is painful to not go looking for diseases that I know have almost zero prior plausibility of being the cause of the patient's symptoms. And lastly, depending on the case, I might mentally run through organism class. Could it be a viral, rickettsia, spirochete, bacteria, fungal, parasite, etc.? I once counted around 1,400 bugs I need to know, or at least know of, to be an infectious disease doctor. More than Pokemon, 1,008, but still, I gotta catch them all. And there is another way to categorize and consider disease presentation when considering the diagnosis. There is the common presentation of a common disease, the uncommon presentation of a common disease, the common presentation of an uncommon disease, and the worst, an uncommon presentation of an uncommon disease. And even worser, an uncommon disease presenting like a common disease. I was not surprised to see that epidural abscess was on the missed list in the ER. It is an uncommon disease that often presents like a very common disease, back pain. 
many of the cases I have seen have had a delay in diagnosis because it starts as a persisting back pain after minor trauma. No signs of infection like fever, etc. It is not until the disease progresses to some sort of paralysis that an MRI is ordered. We can't do every test on every patient every time. There is simply not enough time, resources, or money. The fog of war has nothing on the fog of diagnosis. Quote, medicine is the realm of uncertainty. Three quarters of the factors on which action in medicine is based are wrapped in a fog of greater or lesser uncertainty. A sensitive and discriminating judgment is called for, a skilled intelligence to scent out the truth. You know, an infectious disease doctor. But it is not unusual when initially seeing a patient to not have a clue what's going on. Lymphoma, endocarditis, stills again? Often early in a disease presentation, the presentation is too vague to point to a specific disease. I'm looking for the pattern, and there's no pattern I can see. What then? And that's a common problem in the ER. Early in my career, it was not, don't just stand there, do something. Now it's, don't just do something, stand there. My wife will tell you, I'm excellent at doing nothing. But so often, time will clarify what the diagnosis might be and what needs to be done. As Lao Zi noted, and I often quote, let muddy water stand, it will become clear. It is important to explain to the patient why you are doing nothing, as often they want something done, anything. Do it. I often compare the problem to unripe fruit. It takes time for the disease to mature to the point where it can be recognized. The ER is filled with green bananas that are yellow by the time I am called to see the patient. Infectious disease docs do have a reputation for doing excessively detailed histories to aid in making a diagnosis and for writing extremely long notes. I do the former, but I never did the latter. As an aside, if you have not discovered Dr. Glauco Flecken, you are in for a real treat. I have never met the man, although he is an ophthalmologist in Portland, but he has evidently followed me on a hike. Producing war and peace for each consult is a real fetish that I do not understand. Many cases are actually simple, especially if you know what you are doing. By the way, if you want a really experienced diagnostician, avoid a university hospital. Think about it. Often the attendings are on service, what, three months a year? So they might have 25% of the experience of someone who works every day in the trenches. And it is often indirect experience, patient to medical student to resident to fellow to attending and back, often the perfect opportunity for medical telephone. My time in skepticism in science-based medicine has made me a far better physician and diagnosticians. Skeptics are, I wager, more aware of how we think and the errors of thought that lead to a faulty diagnosis. Quote, the most common cognitive problems involve faulty synthesis, premature closure, i.e. the failure to continue considering alternatives after an initial diagnosis was reached was the single most common cause. Other common causes included faulty context generation, misjudging the salience of findings, faulty perception, and errors arising from the use of heuristics. Faulty or inadequate knowledge was uncommon. Because of my time at science-based medicine, I have spent an inordinate time thinking about thinking. As a result, I think I think better. One of those thought processes is to consciously consider the outliers. 
Often all the patients presenting signs and symptoms can be accounted for with one diagnosis, or at least we try to. Occam, not Hickam, rules. Newbies and the unexperienced focus on what is consistent with the presumptive diagnosis. I always make a point of considering the inconsistencies, occasionally resulting in a different diagnosis, like the aforementioned empyema, a huge pleural infection with an oral streptococcus, but almost no lung infection. There's no pneumonia to cause the empyema. It was thought the empyema was due to aspiration pneumonia, but after careful questioning, found that the aspiration event occurred after a prolonged and violent vomiting. Borhov syndrome was a better explanation. Focusing on the outliers is a habit that has to be learned and does not come naturally. There are two, and more likely more, patterns in medicine that I think will adversely affect the future development of good diagnosticians. One is the lack of continuity. These days, everyone is a shift worker. Well, everyone but me. A week on and a week off. In my hospitals, I am the only doc that is there day in and day out, except for vacation and some weekends. I suspect physicians are not getting the understanding of the disease that only comes with following a patient from admission to discharge and then outpatient follow-up. Continuity of care is important to gain understanding of disease and the best opportunity to see, well, screw-ups. I always tell residents that it is okay to make a mistake. Just don't do it twice, except if you're diagnosing Stills disease. The other is EPIC, a.k.a. the Electronic Medical Record. The way rounds work now is everyone sees their patients and then vanishes to the computer room to chart. I rarely see other docs or attendings or residents as I wander the halls. The constant interaction with other providers has vanished, and with it the cross-fertilization that occurs when discussing the odd cases. I used to get multiple questions a day from docs I would run into. Now, maybe one a day, on a busy day. I do not know what the solution is to improving diagnostic acumen. The comment section of the New York Times article suggests doctors should listen to their patients better. I doubt that. The problem is patients don't give histories, they give stories. Digression-filled stories from which we need to extract the pattern of the patient's disease. It is often how much of what I need to know, symptoms, onset, progression, current status, seems at times to be almost deliberately avoided by patients in favor of details I do not need, such as who drove them and in what car, or information I already have in the chart. Time, concentration, stamina, and empathy are all limited resources in a busy day. I understand why doctors interrupt their patients around 11 seconds in. They so often are not telling you anything you need to know to figure out the problem at hand. Given that, quote, for a given disease, nonspecific or atypical symptoms increase the likelihood of error, and, quote, these issues are not unique to the ED, they are seen across clinical settings regardless of study method, I'm not certain if there's any way to make physicians better diagnosticians. Most of the solutions I find online seem, well, trite. They come down to thinking better, which is hard to do. Or teach. Just look at the Cognitive Bias Codex. It is a wonder that humans can force themselves to think clearly. Rational thought, I wonder, is perhaps at its core an unnatural act. And I have seen many people over the years, physicians and otherwise, who just seem to be unable to process the information to come up with the right answer, 
One plus one equals cheese. It's always odd to see, but how to counter it? One of the sobering experiences of my career is coming across the charts of patients I took care of early in my practice. Reading my notes I wrote as an intern when I was a third-year resident or reading my notes from early in my practice. Man, as Mark Twain famously sort of noted, when I was an intern, I was so ignorant I could barely be called a doctor. But when I got to be an attending, I was astonished at how much I had learned in seven years. My current skill set is a result of 40 years of hospital clinical medicine and all that comes with it. I do not think there is a shortcut to all the lessons I have learned, unfortunately. And I expect some diagnoses will always be part of the human condition. As a reminder, if you should have an interest in the diagnosis and treatment of infectious disease cases, there is no better source than my Pus Whisperer series, a collection of my Medscape blog entries. I'm up to number six and counting. Harriet liked them. And that ends a QuackCast number 220. Thanks for listening. See you later. Bye.